Our text today comes from Matthew chapter 22 as we continue our verse-by-verse study through Matthew's gospel. Hear now God's holy word. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they'd heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, as your spirit filled our savior Jesus, your son Jesus, as he stood in the temple courtyard teaching these things. So by that same spirit, we pray that you would fill us and guide us into truth. Loosen my tongue, give me clarity of thought so that I might present these things accurately. Deliver us from every error, deliver us from every distraction and every lie and focus us on your truth by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Next year is a big election year. These seem to come more and more frequently. Maybe I'm just getting older. It seems like we just had a big election year, but we've got another one coming up next year. And with all the the debates and town halls and interviews that we're bound to be exposed to over the next 12 months or so, there will no doubt be plenty of gotcha questions lobbed by journalists toward candidates which are all attempts to generate sound bites and create these awkward situations, these awkward, uncomfortable responses, rather than these questions are not a good faith attempt to understand a person or understand an issue. A gotcha question is a question posed by an interviewer in order to trap or embarrass the person being interviewed. And often, no matter how they answer the question, it will put the responder in a negative light. The questions are often leading and loaded based on faulty premises or crazy hypotheticals. And the goal is to ambush or to embarrass the interviewee. A classic example, and I don't like this question at all. I don't even think it's funny, but but just to give you an idea, the question that gets uh, used as an example is, have you stopped hitting your wife? I mean, how do you answer that question? Yes, oh, so you used to, or you did. Or if you answer that question, no, I haven't stopped. Oh, well, you still are. And these questions are posed in such a way to make the journalist appear supremely righteous. Um, The journalist comes across with this kind of smug, self-satisfied, false sincerity, and they make themselves the center of attention. You hear these kinds of questions too in debates and conversations about the Christian faith. There are all these tired old gotcha questions that unbelievers will ask you thinking that they have put you in checkmate. Like, where did Cain get his wife? Or, if God is so good, why is there evil in the world? The question's asked as if we've never thought about that. In the whole history of the, of, of the Christian faith, as if we've never wrestled with these things, as if we don't have an answer. It's a, it's a gotcha question. And, and these questions are not intended to further dialogue. The purpose is to end dialogue, is to cut off conversation, to make the inquirer look smart and the target look dumb. 
Well, this is not only a modern debate strategy. This is a very, very old tactic, and it's, it's a tactic that we see used by the critics of Jesus repeatedly as they try to trap him into doing or saying something that will destroy his reputation and turn the people against him. In this uh, section that we're studying today, the Herodians, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and their disciples, they all swarm around Jesus uh, looking for something that, that they can use against him. They're asking one gotcha question after another to try to, to, try to trip him up. And they, they center their questions on all the touchy, controversial subjects of their day, the taxes and Roman authority and resurrection and life after death and God's law. And Jesus will deal with each of these confidently and skillfully, one right after another, leaving all of his interviewers confused and frustrated, but his disciples are strengthened and encouraged by the way that he deals with these, with these questions. Quickly, before we get into the text, let's remember where we are in Matthew's gospel to quickly catch us up to the context. Jesus spent the majority of his ministry, of his life, outside the city of Jerusalem. He was way up north in Galilee because he knew that when he arrived in the city, this thing would happen. He would be surrounded by dogs who seek his life. He would be surrounded and encircled by these, these ravenous jackals that would do everything in their power to kill him. And he intended to delay that confrontation until it was time to lay down his life. So Jesus stayed far outside the city, teaching his disciples, preaching the gospel of the kingdom with many signs, attending the preaching. But now, toward the end of the gospel, we have seen him make his way toward the city. He's marched into the city triumphantly. He's gone into the temple. He interrupted the activity, the business of the temple. He uh, tossed the tables over. He has condemned the activity of the, of the temple. He went out of the city that night and came back at a later point to sit down in the temple courtyard to teach. And that's when the chief priest came to him and said, who do you think you are? By what authority do you do these things and say these things? And Jesus's response was to give them three parables. And we've studied those over the last couple of weeks. Three parables in increasing intensity, which all depict these priests as as unfaithful sons, as wicked tenants, as party crashers, wedding crashers who come into the wedding, uh, the great feast without the right garment. And as a result of their recalcitrance, as a result of their stubbornness and their hard-heartedness, they are going to be evicted. They're gonna be tossed out of the party and their blessings and their calling will go to others. That's where we left off last week at the last of these three parables. Now. As Jesus has been telling these parables, he's attracted quite a crowd, a perfect environment now for opportunists to come to him and to try to trick him into saying something offensive and say something dangerous in the, in the presence of all these witnesses so they can capture a soundbite to pass on to the proper authorities. So here come the gotcha questions. They're trying to bait him into answering in a way that's going to be destructive for him. So verse 15 of chapter 22, the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians. Now notice right off the bat, 
the Pharisees themselves don't go at first. The Pharisees send some of their disciples, some of their novices, together with the Herodians. Now, who are the Herodians? Well, they're a political faction that identified with and supported the Herods. They liked the Herods ruling over them, and, and they supported the Herods. The Herods, remember, were the descendants of Esau. They were Edomites. They were figurehead rulers placed there, propped up by the Romans. They got their power from the Romans. They got all of their authority from the Romans, and they're in league with the Romans. Now, this Herod the Great, remember, slaughtered the children in Bethlehem when Jesus was a baby. His son, Herod Antipas, had John the Baptist beheaded. And in spite of all this terror, and in spite of all this bloodshed, the Herodians are a Jewish political faction wearing Herod's t-shirt. They have his sign in their yard. They have his bumper sticker. Uh, they, they are fully in support of, of Herod. And so here they show up to interrogate Jesus with this little detachment of Pharisee seminary students, you know, this little gaggle of youth leaders who come together with the Herodians to test Jesus. These guys would have nothing in common other than the fact that they oppose Jesus. That's the only thing they have in common. They're threatened by him. And so Matthew says the Pharisees were plotting. This is a setup. And they're hoping to provoke uh, Jesus to say something in front of these supporters of Herod that they will take and march right up to Herod and tell him what they just heard. They're trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself. So this entourage comes to Jesus saying, teacher, we know that you are true and that you teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone. He's, they say, you're not intimidated by anybody for you do not regard the person of men. Do they really believe what they're saying here? Are they being genuine? Are they being, are they being sincere when they say, you teach the truth and you lead and, and teach the way of God in truth? Do they mean that? No, not at all. They don't mean that. Matthew will write in just a minute, in just a few verses, he says, Jesus perceived their wickedness. They are flattering. Flattery is when you use the power of your language to puff someone up, to tell them what you know they want to hear in order to manipulate them into doing something you want them to do. In, in Proverbs, there's all of this instruction, all these prohibitions and warnings against flattery. In, uh, in Proverbs 5, Lady Folly, the immoral woman, flatters the young man to seduce him into sin and destruction. And, and Proverbs 5 says, her lips drip honey and her mouth is smoother than oil but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. We all know this, young men and women, there are people who will speak to you flowery words and who will tell you what you want to hear. And they know how to manipulate you with their words, but they're trying to lead you into destruction. They have a goal, and that is the ruination of your soul. Uh, young ladies, boys will tell you, they'll, they'll talk to you and they'll tell you anything. I'll promise you the moon. And they're leading you into hell. They're leading you into destruction and sin. It's deliberate. And Proverbs warns us about it. Proverbs 26 says, a flattering mouth works ruin. When you come across someone who is just inflating you and just buttering you up, you know that there's a fish hook in there. There's something in there. It's gonna grab me. There's something. They are doing this for a reason. There's no other reason why they would be 
uh, talking this morning. Now, there is brotherly encouragement that we expect and there should be encouragement between husbands and wives and children and parents and parents and children. That's all normal. That's a speaking words of life and, and delight and enjoyment and thanksgiving toward each other. That's not what this is. This is purposely building someone up in order to tear them apart, to manipulate them. And that's what these men are doing. When they come to him, they're flattering him. Flattery does not protect the life and reputation of your brother. It works to tear him down. And we all know how to do it. Some of us are better than others, but we all know how to do this. And we know when we're doing it. And the Bible says it's wicked. So these men come to Jesus full of flattery. But again, there's a little fish hook. There's, there's a little barb in there in the middle of all that sweetness. Verse 17, they say, tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, the purpose of this question is to paint Jesus into a corner. They're trying to put him into an impossible position. Is it lawful to pay taxes? Does, is God pleased with us paying taxes to Caesar? Is it okay in terms of God's law to pay taxes to Caesar? Now, if Jesus says no, that will make him a rebel against Rome. And it would be very easy from there to paint him as a revolutionary. And Jesus would get an express lane to execution. If he says no, it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. If he says yes, if he says, oh yeah, taxes are great. Taxes are good. I love paying taxes. Give me an extra you know, form to fill out. I want to pay more taxes. If he says taxes are awesome and they're great, that would put him on the side of the Herodians and it would turn the common people against him and it would delegitimize him as a prophet. So they're hoping, what they're trying to do is provoke Jesus into striking a match and throwing it into this powder keg, which is Jerusalem. Now remember, this is Passover time. The city is busting at the seams from these pilgrims from all over the ancient world, who most of whom, the majority of whom, want to see Jerusalem and Judea liberated from Roman authority. And, 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 and this, this issue of taxation, Roman taxation was an ever-present reminder. No matter where you live, it was a reminder of the suffocating dominion of Rome, of, of this Roman power, uh, this foreign power ruling over their lives, fueling their constant frustration. So the, the emotional fervor is running hot. And don't forget that in these crowds, there are zealots and there are revolutionaries just ready. All you need to do is give them a green light and they're gonna pick up a sword and they're going to get violent in this environment. So these Pharisees, it's very, very wicked what they're trying to do. They are trying to instigate disorder with this, with this question. They're looking for a revolt and violence, but pay close attention to this. Watch this so closely. Jesus does not take the bait. He doesn't take the bait. Watch and listen carefully to what Jesus is doing here. It's so critical because wicked men who do not care about your families and they do not care about your career and they do not care about your livelihood or your reputation, wicked men will instigate, will try to bait you into saying and doing really stupid things that, that wins you nothing and loses you everything. And, and they'll, they'll do exactly what the Herodians and the Pharisees' disciples are trying to do here. Don't feed the trolls. Don't give them what they're looking for. Refuse to do it. Don't enter the little scenario that they're setting up. And so Jesus, verse 18, he perceived their wickedness. 
He knew exactly what they were up to. He saw right through it. He said, you're, you're coming here uh, 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 trying to uh, inflate my ego and then ask me this question. I know what you're up to. I know what you're doing. He perceived their wickedness and said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? Notice Jesus had to ask for a coin. He's not carrying one. Jesus is not swayed by earthly riches at all. He's not under their dominion. He doesn't lust after riches. He doesn't, he doesn't worry about money. He's not concerned about money. He's not in bondage to it. I, I restrict myself to one Lord of the Rings uh, illustration a year. So I'm gonna play that card now. I'm gonna use that coupon right now. And you remember when uh, Tom Bombadil was the only uh, character in all of the Lord of the Rings who was not affected by the ring of power. They wouldn't leave it for him. He wouldn't give it to him because he'd lose it. I mean, he'd just put it down somewhere and not pick it up. He'd forget that he had it. It had no power over him. And, and that is the attitude of Jesus toward Buddy. Remember, he's already gotten a question about paying the temple tax, and, and he told Peter to go cast a line in the water and catch a fish and find a coin in there, maybe. But, but I, don't have any, I don't have any money on me. I don't have anything to pay these taxes by. So Jesus is not beholden to riches. Jesus is not, he's not invested in the, the, the world in any, in any way. But the fact that these men can reach into their pockets and pull out a Roman coin says something about them. Roman coins were stamped with the image of Caesar on the head's side. It had, had Caesar's image. And then if you flipped it over on the tail's side, on the obverse, there was a Roman goddess, either a goddess justice or, or the goddess of peace. And just like all currency, all over the world, there were there were pictures of heroes and idols and symbols of the society. All currency has, has all the heroes and the symbols of a society printed on it or stamped on it. Money is covered in icons of the state religion. Whatever the state religion is, it is money is covered with that. It, it's, all intended, it's all intended to remind you who it belongs to. Money tells you where it came from and who, is, who it's going back to. Currency also has slogans on it, typically. It also it has little phrases and things. Money is a really helpful propaganda tool because we all got to have it. We ought to look at it. We ought to uh, carry it around. So on the Roman coin, on the front, all around the edge of the coin was a slogan that proclaimed that Caesar was the son of God. C Caesar was divine, basically, is what the front of the coin said. And you flipped it over. It, it said, um, Maxim, I'm sorry, Pontiff Maxim. And Caesar is the high priest. High priest of what? Well, he's the high priest of the cult of Caesar worship. And so when Jesus asks him for a coin, he looks at it and says, whose image is this? Whose inscription is this? I mean, I really want you to take a look at this thing. What does it say, guys? Do you agree with any of this? Do you think that, that Caesar is the son of God? You think he's divine? Do you think that, that Caesar is the high priest. Look at these graven images of false gods on here. Look at this idolatry. Pharisees, is this clean or unclean? This, in your perspective, is this a clean thing or an unclean thing? And what are you doing walking around with this blasphemous thing in your pocket? You know, if I'm playing by your rules, what, 
What are you doing walking around with this idolatrous thing? Why did you bring this into the temple to begin with? Jesus' response, it's like somebody just handed him a used Kleenex or or somebody just handed him an old gym sock. You know, what, what did you just give me? What is this? What is this thing? Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. If Caesar's picture is on the money, Jesus says, then you better give it back to him. It's his. And if he asks for it, give it back. There's a cost to living in an empire under a ruler like Caesar. And, and under the arrangement of the sovereign God of the universe, he has allowed the Roman Empire to flourish. And he's raised up this man, Caesar. And so give him what is due him, whatever, whatever's due to him. But more importantly, more importantly, give to God the things that are God's. I think our inclination is to always read Jesus's words here in such a way that we emphasize the first part. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Do for the civil government the things that the civil government requires of you to do. Honor the king the way the uh, uh, king wants to be honored. And then in almost a whisper, we, we read that second part. Oh yeah, and you know, give to God the things that are God's. Just whatever's left over. You know, give to God the things that are God's. The emphasis is on the first part. And this is how I always heard this talked about kind of all my life about, about you, you, you um, as, as if Jesus is underscoring Caesar's presence and authority and, and saying, you better submit and do whatever Caesar tells you to do. Pay your taxes and vote. And, and, and if you get conscripted, if you get drafted, you go fight in his wars. And then you, you stand up when his flag is raised. You do the, all these things. That, that's what you're bound to do. And, and, then, and then it's as if the, the way that it's read is as if Jesus is creating these two separated spheres of life entirely separated spheres of life. You have civic life with its values and its ethos and its, its rules. And then you have religious life, which has its own jurisdiction, but these two are never to mix. One really doesn't have anything to do with the other. It is assumed. They're sealed off except when there's a conflict. When there's a conflict, then religious life must always give way to and must always submit to the civic order, always do, always, always do whatever Caesar says, no matter what. You see, because the civic sphere has to do with reality. I mean, come on, the civic sphere has to do with practical realities of life seven days a week. The religious sphere over here, giving to God the things that are God's, that, that's ambiguous and weird and, and irrelevant. It only concerns things that are happening in your head and, and sometimes things that happen for a few minutes on Sunday morning. And, and it's assumed that this is what Jesus is saying, that this is the arrangement that Jesus is establishing. But that is utterly wrongheaded and false, top to bottom. What Jesus is doing here is actually limiting our responsibility to Caesar. Give back to Caesar only what belongs to Caesar. Don't give him anything that doesn't belong to him. Don't give him anything else. Don't give him your worship. Don't give him your children. Don't give him your dependence. Don't invest your hopes in him. Put everything in perspective. Be as unburdened by this currency as Jesus was. Sure, Caesar's money, earthly wealth, it's necessary to get some things done. And by the way, when I comment on all the iconography on 
on money. I don't mean that we should consider it an unclean thing or a, or a wicked thing. We, we keep it in its perspective. We can point out all the problems with paper currency, fiat currency, and fractional reserve banking and all these things. But you know what? At the end of it, it still comes in pretty handy at the grocery store. And, and you still have to pay you know, your mortgage with it. I mean, it's, it, it kind of comes in handy. But we don't worship it. It doesn't define us. So give back to Caesar only what God has put under Caesar's jurisdiction. Pay the tax, obey the laws, seek the peace of the city, but more importantly and more profoundly, give to God the things that are God's. Now, now what belongs to God? Everything else? No, everything. You see, even what belongs to Caesar belongs to God. Ultimately, even the money. In Christian worship, we have this opportunity to demonstrate that Jesus is king over everything, even the money because we give it away, we just give it away. We're not possessed by it. Everything belongs to God, everything, as the Heidelberg Catechism so, uh, so eloquently puts it. I am not my own, but belong both in body and soul, in life and death to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. Everything belongs to God. Just as the denarius was stamped with Caesar's image, so you are stamped with God's image. You and your children bear the image of the Almighty. And though the denarius was inscribed with blasphemy, you have stamped on you the name of the triune God in your, in your baptism. So that everything you are and everything you have belongs to the Lord God. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and all those who dwell in it. So every direction you turn your head, everything you see and smell and taste and touch and hear, it all belongs to Jesus. It was all created for his glory. And so whenever there's a conflict of allegiances between Caesar and the Lord, the triune God always wins. He always gets the higher allegiance. He always gets the obedience. He always gets the worship. When there's a conflict between what Caesar demands and what God demands, we are forbidden from giving to Caesar what is God's. That is the distinction that Jesus is drawing here. Now, notice again what Jesus has done. He doesn't validate their question by taking one of the sides that they want him to take. They want to goad him into a fruitless debate about taxation and taking one side or the other. They want to trick him into saying something seditious so that they have something to pin him with, either in front of Rome or the people. And they don't care. They don't care who he makes an enemy just as long as he makes some enemies, as long as he's unvalidated. But he... He so skillfully, Jesus eclipses all of that and gets to the real issue. You guys are so distracted with this taxation stuff and you're frustrated by Rome and you're chafing and you're carping over the onerous presence of Rome in your life, but you aren't giving to God the obedience and worship that he is due. This goes back to Jesus's criticism earlier of the temple. He says, this place is a den of reactionaries. This place is a hangout for revolutionaries. It is not a, a, a house of prayer to all nations. You're, you're, just, you're just fomenting and chafing and super frustrated when you hang out here. You know, whenever there was a rebellion in Israel, there was always a, a handful, there's always a company of sons of Belial, Sons of wickedness. There are all these worthless men, basically, hanging out, carping, complaining, not doing any real work, but ready to go when there was some kind of reactionary or revolutionary effort that, that needed to take place. And, and that's what these guys are doing. This is the very kind of thing Jesus was criticizing there. Uh, that just, just 
uh, fomenting and frustrated. And instead of repenting, instead of giving to God what is God's, you would rather engage in these distractions and silly, fruitless debates over things you have no control or influence upon. You, 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 they could have stood there in Jerusalem 1,400 miles from the city of Rome, and Jesus could have with them argued and complained about the injustices of Roman taxation all the rest of that day and all the rest of that week. And do you know what would change in the Roman Empire after they did that? Do you know how Caesar's mind would have been influenced by that argument? Do you know what would be different? Nothing, zero, there would be nothing different. And do you know what they would be expected to do the next time tax day rolled around? Well. They'd have to give to Caesar what he is due. Well, see, Jesus says he liberates them to do that and say, just do that. You're not investing in Rome. You're not, you're not supporting. You're not propping up. You're just giving back to the system what the system has turned loose of. You're just turning back. Be free. Just, just let it go. And now do that and then, and then consider everything else in your life as belonging to God. And, and because of this, you're free to love your wife and train your children and use your two hands to do good work and serve your neighbor and relieve the suffering of the other people and enjoy all of God's good gifts with thanksgiving and keep the Sabbath and keep the feasts and worship God in joy and contentment and sincerity. Repent of your sins and grow. Give to God what is God's. Your life doesn't belong to Caesar. Give to God what is God's. Now, this is... This is this requires more effort to do this. It's way more effort than hanging around the temple courtyard and being edgy about temp, uh, taxation in Rome. But it's what Jesus commands. This, this is so instructive, and this is so necessary for us to hear and for us to help other people to hear. You've got lots of friends, you've got lots of family members who are super frustrated with the way that the world is right now. And Thanksgiving is coming and Christmas is coming. You're going to have, you know, crazy Uncle Fred who's going to sit at the table and he's going to talk about, you know, conspiracy theories and all kinds of things. And they want to talk about the solutions and, and, and political solutions and social situ solutions. They want to talk about this in a vacuum apart from King Jesus, apart from God's law. And, and they, they want to get wound up about how the world is going to hell, how everything is turning to garbage. And, and, our position and our job is to walk them back and help them see, brother, there are no non-Christian solutions to the problems that we have. There, there are zero answers to our society's sickness, zero answers apart from the gospel. Let me put it a different way. The kingship of Jesus over all things is the only answer to all of the situations, all the problems, all the difficulties that we have. There are no non-Christian solutions to the problems. And, and you've, you've talked to, I know you have, I know you've talked to ideologues and reactionaries, even pro professing Christians who are drunk on the doom of the day, who at the same time can't name the Ten Commandments. They can't name them in order, and they don't know where to find them in the Bible. Uh, they, can't, they're not committed to a church. I mean, they're really illiterate when it comes to God's word. And so when we get asked about these things, and when folks come to you with their hair on fire, and they expect you to have an opinion and a position on everything, you can answer the way that Jesus does. Yeah, that's bad. You know, leftists, man, I'm with you. Man, they're awful. Leftists are bad. But tell me, what is your relationship to Jesus? I mean... I, where is your church? Who is your pastor? 
How are you faithful? Are you giving to God the things that are God's? That's the question. Give to Caesar what's Caesar, whatever. Give to God the things that are God's. That's the question that matters. Nothing changes unless people start submitting to King Jesus. That's the answer. And worshiping him with everything. Well, this crew, they just marveled at what Jesus said, and they went their own way. But after they depart, another group appears. Verse 23, the same day, Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Here's another species of gotcha questions. There's the, the first one is trying to paint Jesus into a corner and uh, trying to pose a question with no way out. The second question, now from the Sadducees, refers to a situation, such an outlier, it's so convoluted that it is assumed that Jesus's theological framework could not bear the weight of this complex situation. Now, you may have come across elaborate questions like this. There's one that gets repeated, and I've heard it with different details and posed in a few different ways, but, but like pro-abortion uh, advocates, uh, when you're in a conversation with them and you say, you believe life begins at conception, and they ask, well, well, let me give you a scenario. What if you're in a burning building? Let's just say a fertility clinic, for example, and you're trying to get out of the burning building, and you hear a child crying. There's a five-year-old child who's crying. But you also see on the counter a box that says 1,000 viable human embryos over here. You can only save one, which you're gonna save. And if you take the bait on that really dumb scenario, if you take the bait and say, oh, I'm gonna save the child, obviously they'll say, aha, aha, you see, there is a difference between a child and an embryo. You saved one child rather than a thousand because you know there's a difference between a child and an embryo. And, and, and so in, in order to make this point though, in order for them to make this argument, they have to build this elaborate, impossible, ridiculous premise that would never happen what, what would you do? You would try to save both. You would do everything in your power to save both. What are you talking about? This is not a legitimate question. They're just playing word games. You know, when you took uh, math and algebra and you had these word puzzles and these word games, that's all it is. It's not reality. It's not, uh, it, it's not based in a, a real uh, desire for truth. And the Sadducees do the same thing to Jesus. Now, who are they again? Now, these Sadducees are theological liberals who don't believe that the prophets were inspired. They don't believe the wisdom books of the Old Testament were inspired. They base their system of religion only on the five books of Moses. That's all that they read. That's all that they study, Moses alone. And so they believe that because Moses doesn't say anything about resurrection or about miracles or angels or any life after death, they assume that there's nothing in the law about any of these topics there is, it's all over the place, but they assume that there's nothing in the law about this. And you might ask, well, if they don't believe in life after death, then why were they religious at all? What's the point? Well, the point is, is that the Sadducees dominated the priestly class and that brought them money and that brought them power and influence. These men are hirelings. They are wicked tenants in, in the parable of the, of, the, of the vineyard. They're able to manipulate power uh, I'm sorry, manipulate people through their religious authority, through their shell of religion. 
but they don't believe any of it themselves. It's all a joke to them. So they bring Jesus a question about resurrection, a question about life after death. They assume that this is all preposterous, that, that resurrection, life after death, is the silliest thing ever. And they're doing this in public. You know, there's a multitude here. There's a lot of people around. They're doing this in order to undermine belief in the Scriptures. They're doing it. They, they purposely attack the truth of Scripture, and they're doing it to mock. And, and this whole thing is mockery. And their scenario here, the one that they present, is based in the law of leveret marriage. And I, I know that y'all have studied this before. In Deuteronomy 25, the law of Moses prescribes that if a married man dies, his unmarried brother should marry the widow in order to preserve the family name and the family inheritance. You see, under the old covenant, preservation of the land and preservation of the tribal identity was paramount. And so this is how they could see to it that the bloodline and the land of the deceased did not go to a stranger. Now, that's the background and hoping to demonstrate that this leveret law was incompatible with any idea about resurrection, any idea about life after death, the Sadducees weave this elaborate scenario. They say there were seven brothers. One married this woman and he died. And his brother married her and he died. And his third brother married her and he died. And the fourth one, and nobody asks, what's she doing? What's going on with her? All these guys are dying. And then the fifth <laughs> marries her and he dies. So they're up to seven. And they pose him this scenario and they say, so in the resurrection, Jesus, whose wife is she? Checkmate, resurrectionist. Ha ha, gotcha. You ain't getting out of this one. Well, Jesus answered them, verse 29, and said, you're mistaken not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So Jesus answers them in a way that he demonstrates they're the ones being absurd. Again, he gets right to the heart of the issue. You guys are so mistaken. You're, you're so confused. You don't know the Bible, and you don't know the power of God. Essentially, he says, you're unbelievers. You're apostate. You don't have God's Spirit guiding you into truth. You are so lost. But again, here's an answer to your question. Not granting the scenario, not getting into your scenario, but you need to know that in the resurrection, he says, in the life to come, there is no marriage, there's no reproduction. The only marriage that there is is the marriage between Christ and his church. Our current marriages are reflections of that marriage. But in the resurrection, in the life to come, there won't be any new marriages. The family and all human relationships as we know them are all going to be re reorganized in a new way, in a new glorious way around Jesus. And we don't have all the answers to what that looks like because God hasn't given us all the answers, but we do know that it will be greater and deeper and better than anything that we experience in this life. The best human relationship that you have right now is only a taste of the greater and deeper intimacy and union and fellowship and communion that you will have with Christ and his people for all eternity. And that should bring us hope and not worry. You read this sometimes, and I know people get a little anxious about this, like, what's going to happen? I don't, I don't understand how all this works. Rest. God knows what he's doing. And his answers are better than anything that you can imagine. It's better than anything that you could come up with or anything you could conceive of. 
And so we don't have all the answers now. He hasn't given them to us, but these Sadducees are only fixated on this present world. They don't have any capacity to understand the world to come, and Jesus exposes that because of their unbelief, because they don't know the power of God or the scriptures. And then for the coup de grace, Jesus says, by the way, while we're on the subject of resurrection, which you deny, you assume that the law of Moses has nothing to say about resurrection, but I've got a question for you. Why in Exodus 3 does Yahweh say, I am the God of Abraham? I am the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Yahweh says that long after those men have been buried. Uh, Jesus' point is uh, that if God says, I am the God of Abraham, he is the God, not was, is the God, what that means is Abraham still has life. God has not abandoned his saints to the grave. Their names still matter to God because they still live, and they will participate in the greater resurrection to come. So God's covenant, light, uh, covenant love toward his people does not end at the grave because our existence doesn't end at the grave. And that's, that's Jesus' point. And he says, you know, there, there's something to think about. There's something to chew on, Sadducees. The law of Moses affirms what you deny. And the Sadducees are silenced by Jesus. They, they don't believe, they're not gonna repent, and they're only gonna look for a way to, uh, to seek Jesus' death. They're only hardened. Now, there are some more questions for Jesus, and we're not gonna get to those today. We're, we're gonna stop there and save the rest for next time. But do you see how easily these men get lost in the weeds of these moral and ethical and political questions because they simply do not know the scriptures. They don't know the Bible. Do you see how masterfully Jesus cuts right through these knots because he knows and he understands what his father has spoken? To, to the novice, these look like really hard questions. These challenges look very intimidating. And it's possible that you get intimidated by hard questions. And, and you wanna avoid hard questions because you're not confident and how you can answer them. But, or, or maybe you're just afraid of being confused or unsettled by scoffers and mockers and being e easily shaken. But let me encourage you that you are likely more skilled than you give yourself credit for. And the only way to gain confidence is to internalize God's word. The way that Jesus was, was breathing, he was the word. Just as Jesus internalized his father's word, we have to internalize it, to meditate on it, to give ourselves entirely to knowing it inside and out. People like the Sadducees come with uh, accusations and, and they come with all these assumptions thinking they know what is in the Bible, but they really, they really have no clue. You do. You do know what's there because you have applied yourself and that makes you pretty well equipped to defend the faith. And when people try to drag you off track with dishonest debate tactics, refuse to play their game. Just don't play. Don't let them make the rules. Keep in mind that unbelief is sin. And that means all of their defenses of unbelief are just attempts to cover their guilt and to deny the truth. Their arguments aren't about truth. They're about propping up unbelief and doing it in any way that works, just playing word games. There are no gotchas that unravel the truth of God's word. There are no clever scenarios that are gonna disprove the Bible. Just, just, just rest in that. There is a gospel answer to every hard question, and you 
child of God, have everything you need to answer. You have the same spirit who was in Christ. You have the same spirit to do the very same thing. So you can stand in his power. You can rest in his truths, just like Jesus did, and answer these, these questions. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We ask you to indeed strengthen us with that same spirit that filled him and give us life and give us confidence in your truth every day. Strengthen us and grow us as we listen and hear and obey your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.